Hi, it's Christopher. And Eric. So the episode you're about to hear today... Spoiler alert. ...was recorded before (laughs) Robert Durst was found guilty of murder here in Los Angeles. We still think it makes for a very interesting conversation, and so we hope you will enjoy it regardless. And it was obvious he was going to be convicted. This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and I'm Eric Jaguar. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> I guess we won't talk about why we're so giggly. I don't want to violate your privacy, Eric Shaw Quinn, but we had some pre-mic antics happening here at the studio that were possibly the result of you and having your first large piece of protein since your appendix surgery. Yeah, and we'll see how that plays out. If I suddenly go missing from the episode... You'll understand what happened. <laughs> they just felt like, well, we have to record this. We've got to get home yeah, at some point. We've got to get home at some point. Got to use our own bathrooms. Well, that's a disgusting opening to this episode, which is an installment of True Crime Movie Time, as we told you last week. And a really interesting one. Well-timed and like better timed than we even realized when we originally picked it. The Robert Durst murder trial is happening in Los Angeles, I believe, as we speak. Yes. It's happening right now. Yes. Um, the, if you have not heard of the documentary series The Jinx that was on HBO... Um, you should watch it because it's amazing. Eric has seen it. I have not. We Which may, I have, can't account for. I just you, can't even imagine. I, was, I, I will watch it. I'm going to watch it as a result of what we did watch for today's episode, which is a movie called All Good Things, which is... Um, it has a title card at the beginning that says it was inspired by true events that took place between 1971 and 2000. But it's kind of a romanoclay. Like they you change the names for legal reasons. They probably. don't say particular people, and they do sort of, you know, like it's like well, if you know the key, and the key is it's based on the Robert Durst case, case, um, or at least the Catherine Durst case. Um, or the Susan Berman case, or I, pick it, another it, case. It's like all of it. It goes okay. on and on. Yeah. Um, then that's the key, and you know who all the characters are, but they don't call them by their names. They make, which I didn't remember. I had actually seen it before, mm-hmm. and I think I saw it before the jinx was even a thing. And so I didn't make, I didn't even make the connection that it was a real story mm-hmm. until years later. And then when we were talking about it, I said, it was too much to watch rewatch the Jinx, but I th- so we could do a pairing. Right. Sometimes we'll do true crime movie time and mm-hmm. then follow it the following week with the true crime 
TV club. Based but, on the same case. Based on the same case. We'll look case, at the case from the two different angles, yeah. right. But not this for was this. too much. But here's what is happening. It's sort of like it is a different angle. Okay, so this movie, we're going to talk about all good things. After it was made and after it was released. And it's made based on suppositions in and around a murder case that has never been solved or, you know, like is in no way in the courts or after the fact. But still, Robert Durst, who is believed to be the subject of the Ryan Gosling character in this film, contacted... A.K.A. the murderer. Right. Contacted the filmmakers, expressed his admiration for the film, and agreed to sit down with them and do a commentary for the DVD version. Now, mind you, this film supposes... Oh, my God. ...that he killed several people. And the only thing he took exception to about the film, allegedly, was that he is shown as killing a dog, or it is implied that he killed a dog, okay? So currently, in the murder trial that's happening right now, when she was still district attorney, she was recently voted out. This is my favorite part. Jackie Lacey filed a motion, which was approved, I've, I've done a little digging, and it looks like it was approved, to enter the film itself and his commentary into evidence at the trial. So Robert Durst is currently having to answer in court for things he said for the DVD commentary for the movie that we're about to talk like, about. Like, why didn't you object to this at the time yeah. or in the voiceover part that you did, in the commentary part, commentary track that you did express, you know, exception to the fact that you're basically being presented as a serial killer. So so let me, I wonder if we should, like, boil down the Durst case to a few sentences, if that will make it easier to talk about the movie and everything. Well, give it a whirl. Okay. I mean, go for it. Robert Durst is accused of this. Robert Durst is the, the elder son mm-hmm. of unbelievably wealthy New York property owners. They're, like, the top three, four richest property owners in New York City. They own an unbelievable amount of really substantial uh, real estate and actually own it. They don't just lease it and put their name on it and pretend that they own it. They actually own the property. There was actually a farm, apparently, Mm -hmm. um, where Times Square is that used to belong to their family, and the land still does, and the buildings there still do. So it's kind of an amazing... So he's that kind of rich and that kind of family. It's multi generational, right? right. Um, and and still, you know, ongoing. He's a trust fund holder, right. and he is accused of this. In the early '80s, he is accused of murdering his wife because she wanted a divorce. The body was never found, and then he is accused years later in early two thousand in the in the early two thousands, I should say of convincing a neighbor in his building in Texas where he had moved to escape a reopened investigation into his wife's disappearance. He's accused of convincing that neighbor to drive to Los Angeles and murder a friend of his from that period. Just let me get through it, and then we can pull it apart. Convincing a friend of his to to murder a friend of his in L.A. who was allegedly threatening to expose what she knew about the cover-up of the wife's disappearance in the early 80s. That's that's like the broad strokes of it, right? Well, that's what the film okay. reports. Right. In the in the the jinx and in the court case, nobody is alleging that he convinced the guy to kill Susan Berman. Like they're alleging that he killed Susan Berman himself. So there's no That's that's a supposition of the filmmaker. 
I'm pretty certain. But he I, he is. But he did kill the guy and that's... cut him up and put him in garbage bags and throw the bags in the in the, the Galveston Harbor. They washed ashore. He can he's agreed there was a he said there was a struggle in the house and he shot the guy and he thought because he was already being accused of murdering his ex-wife that people would have thought that he killed him so he cut him up put him in bags and threw him in the river and, and he was acquitted and he his he claimed that the disagreement with him and the neighbor in Texas with the, the guy was old and he was broke and he wanted to move into in a new place with Robert and he misunderstood Robert's intentions and he, and Robert didn't want to buy them a place to because live together because Robert was living in the next door apartment yeah. as a woman dressing a woman. and living as a woman this story because is he was hiding from Jean DiPiero for the one that uh, Cecily Strong does the crazy impersonation of that's who's who, now on Fox that's the um I'm. 99% certain from the, the jinx that that's right. who we're talking about. She is the Connecticut prosecutor who is depicted in the film by, what's by her name? By Diane Venora, who's right. an amazing actress who I love. I hadn't seen her in forever. She's playing. But again, because the film is all fictional names, right. you don't know. But it's the events. Right. It's, it's the events that are alleged. Exactly the events. And yeah. some of the allegations in the film are, they take it a little further right. than what the court case has because it's like, and we'll get back to going back through the film, and so I'll call those out as we go along, because there are some places where the film moves into filmmaker supposition that is not necessarily right. factually supported or alleged by authorities at this point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the 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 film basically opens with a young Ryan Gosling in 1971, uh, very unhappy it's, son of this wealthy family, doesn't fit in, and a know. meat cute. Yeah. He, he's sent by his father to fix a sink at an apartment they own, which, even though he's in a tuxedo and is supposed to be going to a big event. Which sounds like a, a convention of the film. It's you know, a meet cute in a the film. Cute. But yeah. the, the film begins as a love story between right. those two characters, was my point. And it covers an enormous amount of ground in a short time, which I love with movies when they do it well. And he meets Kirsten Dunst is playing the young woman in the apartment whose leak he is sent to investigate, even though he feels a plumber should be sent to investigate the leak, right. not the son of the guy who owns the building. But that's how he meets her. And he uh, hits on her and she hits on him and he takes her to a party at his father's house. And right away, there is a sense on the part of the father that she is beneath his station. Um, he's not really... Uh, he's not really warming to the idea of working at the family company. His dream, as they fall deeper in love, is to open up an organic food store with her in New England. Um, I don't know if any of this part was real. It was. And hanging over the the whole sort of um, his family and what Kirsten Dunst's character is finding out in bits and pieces is that when he was a young child, he witnessed his mother's horrible suicide. She jumped off the roof of the house. Which I don't know is if that's part's true. Like okay. the character That was that really, not in the jinx. The character then. who really took it on the chin, if it was, I don't remember it distinctly. Okay. Like the character who really takes it in the chin in the movie version, which is fictionalized, it's like a Dominic Dunn. That's what I mean by a Romanic lay, where, like the two Mrs. Grenvilles, where he takes an actual murder case and makes it into a fictional story that is based on it, but where they may take some dramatic liberties. They really nail... Robert's actual father's name was Seymour. I don't remember what mm -hmm. Frank Langella's name is in the movie, but he plays you his father and... You. Um, he really takes it in the teeth in the movie. Yeah, Sanford Marks is the fictional name in the movie. Yes, really takes it in the teeth. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Seymour Durst really is kind of saddled with a, a 
almost even a part in it, in the yeah. crime, but certainly as being this monster and a cause. They did, in fact, move for, to Vermont in real life. Okay. In fact, the store that they opened was called All Good Things, which is where they got the name for the movie. Okay. It is Robert Durst's Rosebud. Mm-hmm. It is the moment in his life when he was finally happy. Mm-hmm. He was with her. She was beautiful. She was happy to be there. They were having a great time. And because of, I think because of the trust fund, they weren't really having to survive on what they made from the yeah. from the health food store. But, but they were able to have a good life and have a good time. And he was perfectly happy to be there. And Frank Langella wanted him, not Frank Langella, Seymour and Seymour. or his father wanted yeah. him to come back and be a part of this giant um, real estate concern that they owned and that he was the heir to. He was the eldest son. He had and, a younger and, brother. And so he, he rolls into the store and he basically says, you might be happier, but I'm not, I'm not going to pay for it for much longer. If it's not making any money, I'm going to pull the plug on this, which is sort of the end of their dream, right? And right. so that's how he laces him back into the company. Um, in the movie. This, and again, like I will have a, was this in the Jinx question, this is one of those moments where as an audience member I cringe and granted I've not been I've not been married, you know. But after they are married, after they move to New York into a beautiful apartment, which is sort of a consolation prize to her for losing the store, she's like, "So you want to have kids?" And I'm sitting there thinking, they didn't talk about this before they got married. Like, oh, my God. This is the first time this has come up. And he clearly has no interest in having children. And that lack of interest is directly connected to his painful past and to the suicide of his mother. But also he himself has been manifesting symptoms of profound and serious psychosis, you know, talking to himself while they're driving places, while while he's in the other room and she can hear him down the hall, really animated Full-fledged. Full-on conversation. It's the kind of thing that may inform the actual ending of the jinx. So, um, she um, wants to have a child. He doesn't. She gets pregnant. And he doesn't want her to keep it. And he takes her to the clinic to get rid of it. And he is called away. And this is, again, in the movie. Yeah. she agreed to have a, an abortion for him. Mm-hmm. That, I think, I remember from the jinx. Again, it's been a while that I've seen it. But I think that is a true part of the story. The part about being called away and her having to go by herself what and previously expecting him to go with her, I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. that was the case. I, I, I don't know if that's a real. But in the movie, that is the way that it's played. And it's really kind of the beginning of the divide between the two of them. Really, they, yeah. She had always wanted to study medicine. Yes. And it became a direction that she was going to pursue now that she wasn't going to be a mom anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, then I'm going back to school at some level. And that began to be their practice. They bought a place at the lake, mm-hmm. which is also true for real life as mm-hmm. well as in the as in the movie. And uh, they began living separately more and more. He lived at their right. rather remarkable penthouse in the city, and she lived at their absolutely fabulous place out at the lake in Vermont, I think. I don't know. In the movie, I think it was Vermont. It was probably Canada where they were filming it. But, My, yeah, I would yeah. guess probably closer than that, probably, right. you know, some up, further upstate in New York or in Connecticut or somewhere, but on a lake in the mm-hmm. reasonable somewhere proximity of um, you could take a train back into the city pretty right. easily. So um, he, he starts to manifest 
um, violent tendencies towards her. The movie shows a very disturbing scene where at the he's not only not supportive of her medical career, her medical studies, but at her sort of congratulations graduation party, he announces he's going to be leaving early and expects her to go with him. And she is, of course, horrified. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> So in what is arguably one of the more disturbing scenes in a very disturbing movie. Well, it's the beginning of a really disturbing trend in yeah. the movie and in their life. The Ryan Gosling character basically orders Christ- Kirsten Dunst to leave her own graduation party. And her whole family is there. They're, everyone's horrified that he would well, make this request. She's just like, honestly, she responded perfectly realistically. She yeah. said, you can go if you want to, but I'm not going anywhere. This is no. my graduation party. I'm having a great time. I haven't seen these people. No. So he grabs her by her hair and drags her out of the party in front of. And I'm thinking, like, why a male relative didn't deck him right there? I mean, you never know when you're in those moments how you're going to react. But it was like, oh, my God. Also, this is a movie scene we were talking about. Although, apparently, based on his commentary um, that Robert Durst actually gave for this movie, he says he's heard two different versions of the story one where he dragged her out of the party by her hair, and one where he grabbed her by the hair and pulled out a big hunk of it. Um, he's, and, and his take on it was, that's close. Jesus Christ. That's actually in the commentary for the movie about, based on his real life, yeah. that's now being used as evidence in a, trial in a m- murder trial. Like, and, and I think just to jump jump into this a little bit, the, the, the thing that they're saying or the thing that the district attorney's office said here in Los Angeles was that any normal person would have watched this movie and called their lawyer and filed done, made some sort of public attempt to discredit the claims in this movie. If you were accused of murder by a movie... You would do something about it. You would not Particularly call the director. If you were a billionaire. Yes, exactly. Okay, so this is when the Kirsten Dunst character attempts to get a divorce, and what she is basically told by a divorce attorney is Robert's money is tied up in a series of trusts that are specifically designed to keep a spouse from being able to get him. Get him. That the money stays in the family. The money's going like, to stay in the he family. He lives very well, and the trust pays for everything, but if she tries to come after him, he doesn't actually technically have any money. So she basically, in a moment of despair and increasing cocaine use, decides to try to stick it out, try to make it work. Things continue to get worse, and so she comes up with a plan. And this is like, okay, was this in the jinx? I, this was, I oh, think there was God. some sense of this being in the jinx. So there's been, there's been allu- well, not just illusions, but big hints dropped right along that there's something nefarious going on with the real estate company, that the books are being cooked. And I couldn't find any, well, it's not so much that the books were being cooked, but it's that they, they were the landlords of some pretty questionable properties yeah. like porno houses and um and brothels and because if they own Times Square 
and they were getting rent from those this people. This is pre-Walt Disney Times Square yeah. that we're talking about. And they're trying to – and they're still big landholders and property holders, stakeholders in Times Square today. The building with the the national debt on it, mm-hmm. that's theirs. That's one of their buildings. That big giant building next to right. Bryant Park, that's theirs. So it's – they're still very much players, but – the stuff that was there before was also probably theirs, and it was coming between them and their connections in the city and making them landlords of something that the city was trying to clean up or that was a bit of a disgrace. I couldn't find particular indictments saying that they were – that the Durst family owned the bad properties. The movie asserts that. The movie asserts something and what big. They, and what they say is that she is looking for – because he was the rent collector. They collected all the money in rent from cash from those businesses, those mm-hmm. dubious businesses, Times Square denizens of that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Durst's character, David, in the movie – um, is in charge of collecting them, and he keeps a ledger, and she finds the ledger. And she sends it to Senator Daniel Patrick Monahan, who in that moment, is he just, he later became Speaker of the House. Am I misremembering this, Senator Monahan? I don't remember if he was Speaker of the House or not. We'll have okay, to look that up. scratch that. But he was, he was a he was beloved a, yeah. and long-term, long-time senator from And he New York. is himself. They didn't change his name. He's not some random senator. No. And his response when he sees the package that she stole and put together of these, these ledgers is, this is a family matter, send it back. So in sending it back, she is then exposed to the family as having sent all this stuff to the to the senator in Although the first place. It isn't necessarily her. It's pretty clear that it's her. Mm-hmm. And they basically tell Robert handle it. There's a scene in which the Frank Langella character, Robert, the father of the character who's supposed to be Robert Durst, says, "You need to handle your woman." Essentially. And we're then treated to a series of scenes that basically assert or imply, seriously imply, that he handled it. By disappearing her. She goes missing. The family is distraught. They're holding press conferences. Uh, the the friend character, uh, played by Lily Rabe, who, again, has a different name than the, than her counterpart in real life, is shown as being the spokesperson She's for the Susan family. Susan Lerman instead of Susan Berman. I was like, well, you just quit trying by uh, the time you got I think her. she's, isn't she Deborah Burton? Let me check. Let me, because it was like. But it's Lerman instead of Berman. Berman, I'm like, wow, okay, well, if you're just not going to try. And, I mean, she's depicted as being, from the gate, sort of hyper-aware that there's some real mental health issues going on with the Ryan Gosling character. Who? I'm talking about the friend. The first scene where she's introduced in the I was looking up Daniel Moynihan. I think he was a representative, House of Representative, and then Senator, but I don't think he was Speaker of the House. Ah, Okay, got it. I was completely wrong then. Never mind. So, but, so we're now- He was like a lion of the Senate. He was a big- Yeah. So he, uh, so the Kirsten Dunst character has now disappeared. Okay. Also, we should say this about the movie. We are hearing a narration that's clearly also an interrogation between a much older Ryan Gosling character and what sounds like a reporter or an attorney. We're not really sure. They don't reveal a lot of visuals of what these scenes are. But the voiceover is happening at critical junctures. And we know that this is being narrated from far in the future. So then we are introduced, I believe, to the district attorney character. Well, the other thing that has happened at this point Mm -hmm. is that we have seen that part of the reason that Ryan Gosling's character, the Robert Durst character, if you will, David in the movie is 
not considered a suspect, and this is considered to this day a missing persons case, is that after he dropped her off at the train, she was seen going into the building that they lived in in New York and then seen the next day first talking on a payphone and then getting into a cab and going to school where she never showed up. Mm -hmm. So by that point, he is completely alibied out that having been plenty of other places that she was not and her being seen alive. And we have revealed at this point in the movie Mm -hmm. that it wasn't actually her. It was the friend Susan Lerman or whatever her name is. Um, I think Susan Berman in real life, but in, in the movie that she was the one she was wearing a blonde wig and pretending to be the wife. But I think they reveal that much later in the movie. They do a flashback cut and they show her they they do a they do a shot that looks like Kirsten Dunst getting in a cab. And then later in the movie, towards the end, is they're all sort of she pulls off the they show her in the cab and she pulls off. the. I thought that was at this point in the movie. I thought we'd already. It's fine. But but that's that's the connection here. Yeah. And then she shows up at the gates of the the mansion in Long Island saying making the statement for the family and saying that he won't be talking about it. But Robert is ultimately never really considered a viable suspect because of those sightings. And so there's a time jump. And they never found the body. And there's a time jump then that shows the new district attorney. We're now like 2000 or something around In Connecticut. In Connecticut. Where the murder would have happened. Is saying, I'm going to reopen this case. It's clearly, it's never been solved to my satisfaction. And in that moment, the Robert Durst character says, I'm getting out of town. This woman is out to make her career off of this. I'm going to move to Galveston, Texas and begin dressing as a woman so that nobody recognizes me. Which is like... Well, that's one way to respond. Wow. And this is real. You're saying this this really really happened. happened. Yeah, Yeah. that's really actually what he did. Yeah. And he pretended to be mute so that he wouldn't have to speak because his voice, he would just never have been convincing. Yeah. Um, As a woman, unless he was going as a, no, it just wouldn't have worked. No, it wouldn't have worked. So he pretended to be mute Mm -hmm. and uh, dressed as a woman and, uh, and became friends with a neighbor in the building there in Galveston. Played by America's favorite old man, Philip Baker Hall, Just who can do no wrong. Who is Philip a wonderful Baker actor. He's wonderful. But this is, a, this is a cranky neighbor. This is a financially strapped neighbor. He's difficult. He's fighting with the landlord. And so it, there is some suggestion that Robert sees him as somebody he could easily manipulate, that he sort of takes him under his wing. He makes some confessions to him. And again, this is all alleged by the movie, but maybe not. Because really, we only became aware of this relationship after the um, cut-up pieces of his body began, Philip Baker Hall's body, began washing up on the, the beach in Galveston. Right. And we're, Because we've been getting these shots right along. These little and and they're sort of coupled with the 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 voiceover from the interview that's happening of an older Robert Durst of a car driving onto this rail bridge, hoisting trash bags out from uh, the trunk of the car, dropping them into the water, and you're not really supposed to know who it is. When it first started, I thought, oh, this is going to be a sequence of the mother's suicide because they started talking about that early on in the movie. Then it was, no, it's not that because she jumped off a they roof. They even make and, you in the movie, they even make it seem like it might be Kirsten Dunst. Right, exactly. After she um, leaves him and goes missing. Totally. So, um, out of nowhere then, Robert, while living in Texas, is allegedly contacted by his old friend, 
Deborah Sermon, Berman, Berman, whatever. She yeah. of the multiple. Susan Berman. Susan Berman, who is now living in Los Angeles and not having an easy time of it, which we see through a sequence I of think shots. She's actually from Los Angeles. Is she? Like, okay. They they met at UC, when he was in graduate school at UCLA. Okay. So they were both that's, here. And, that's a detail and that's they were not both, clear from they were the movie. Both trust fund kids. No, it seems like she's yeah. a New Yorker, and I don't think she is. Like, yeah. like was it? I think it was um, your mom who said that she was Bugsy Siegel's daughter or something. She's her, she's a mobster kid. Wow. Like she's from, she, her family was mobbed up. Wow. And she was a trust fund kid and they kind of hit it up for being from kind of questionable families okay. and, but trust fund, you know, recipients. Yeah. So she is lightly threatening him. Basically saying, I'm, I'm at first, I need money and you need to help me out. And given what I know about your ex-wife's or your wife's disappearance, because they never officially divorced, I, you should probably, you know, help me out here. And they show her, she says, my car is wrecked and you can't get around LA with a wrecked car. And we see her wrecked car and the driveway of a house that looks like it could be a few blocks from where we are now. And his wife had, had was eventually declared legally dead. Right. Yeah. While it's still a missing persons case, she's, it's never been a murder. They did eventually because he even remarries mm-hmm. in real life, not in the movie. But So we then see Philip Baker Hall's character get in a car and drive to um, actually that's not what we see. We It's scarier first. I think it's great the way they do oh, it. Yeah. We see the Susan Lerman Berman character drive up to her house. She sees a car parked in front that has Texas license plate, and she thinks, oh, Robert's here. Great, we're going to work this out. She goes into her house. Someone has turned up the television to top volume. She's like, oh, Robert, you can't, you, why do you always need the TV so loud? She goes to turn it down, and then there behind her is Philip Baker Hall's angry old man character with a gun, right? And then I think we cut right. to her shot several and, times. Right, and there are not balloons tied to the top of yeah, the house. No. It's really, it's all in. Yeah. It's a, oh, that was Ed Asner. I take it, never mind. God rest his soul. Poor Ed Asner Bless has left Ed. Um, So, and then we're in, we reveal the source, the true source of this sort of light voiceover that's been happening. Robert Durst is in a courtroom being tried for the murder of the Philip Baker Hall character, and he is giving us a version of the story in which this was all a giant misunderstanding. Philip Baker Hall wanted to be bailed out of his living situation. He thought they were going to move in together. They weren't. He fought. He attacked him. He had to kill the man in self-defense. And the jury lets him off for this. And those bags being dropped off that rail bridge were, in fact, him dressed as a woman, disposing of the remains of Philip Baker Hall's character. That he had cut up with a with his hacksaw in his own living room. Yeah. And destroyed because no, he felt like nobody would believe him. And he's so convincing on the stand as this sort of charming little old guy that yeah. the jury acquits him. He gets yeah. six months for improperly disposing, disposing of, of a, a body. body. Disposing of a body. Did I get us through? Is that and then and then there's a sequence at the end that reveals what the filmmakers believe to be the truth. And I think that's when we see Lily Rabe pretend to be Kirsten Dunst and rip her wig off. In Maybe the so. I. It's, but, I've seen so many different versions of this, real and imagined at this point, that I'm a little unclear on those details. But yeah, that's basically, at whatever point that happens, that's that's the supposition, that she, was, that she knew what was going on. In real life, he actually wrote to, Robert Durst, they believe, actually wrote to 
um, the Beverly Hills police mm-hmm. um, and said they needed there was a cadaver at her house at Beverly Hills that they should go and investigate. And the way that he spelled cadaver and Beverly were consistent with misspellings from other letters he had written to other people. To her. And, and a letter hand, he'd written to her in 1999. And the handwriting yeah. was um, also um, distinctly his. There was a, a cousin, another relative of his, who I believe lives in Los Angeles, who also presented uh, evidences of a similar misspelling and uh, his handwriting in, I don't think he said cadaver, but of Beverly, um, as he communicated with the relative here. That That's a detail from Jinx. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Okay, well, since you have seen The Jinx on HBO, which is the definitive Robert Durst documentary, I want so I want far. you to talk about the difference, but I also want to make something clear about the process of the, the L.A. murder trial that's happening right now, which is a trial for Berman's murder. Susan real, Berman's Susan murder. Susan Berman's murder. Yeah, we can just go with the one name now. Even though... Robert Durst has never been, I don't think, even charged with the disappearance or murder of his wife back in New York. Evidence from that, I don't even know if you can call it a case. Yeah, it's a case. It's a missing persons case. It's been deemed admissible in his murder trial here, which I think is an interesting legal detail for us to consider as we discuss the rest of it. So, the jinx. I mean, one of the most... I, I started watching it sort of as a lark and, you know, it's a true crime, that sort of thing. Um, but it is one of the most outrageous stories. Like, you've heard us talking about it. This movie is basically the same story and it's the same director. Mm-hmm. Um, like, after Durst volunteered to come in and do the the uh, the commentary track for the, the movie was 
Who does that? I, this guy, because this guy is, but like, who cuts up their next door neighbor and admits to killing him? Yeah. In a struggle, you know, over a gun that was Philip Baker Hall's gun, mm-hmm. um, shoots him and then cuts him up with the saw and throws him in the, the harbor um, and gets away with it. Like, it is really astonishing. One of the things that the movie asserted that I thought, like, they asserted that um, his brother, Douglas, that Robert Durst's brother, Douglas, um, not bribed, but contributed yes. to, um, I think her name is Judd, is. You think DP. it's Judge Janine Pirro, the Jeanine Fox Pirro. News commentator? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you is. think that's oh it is that so oh, she's yeah. the inspiration for she's Janice in, Rizzo. She's in The Jinx. The Jinx. Yeah. Okay. Like I remember seeing that and going, Oh, well that's where she came from because she was the prosecutor at the time. Um that that he contributed slash bribed her mm-hmm. not to, which is like, wow, here are some people who might want to sue. Mm-hmm. No news from them, no word from them, all silence. Um, well, she was busy overthrowing our government. And they talked to, um, yeah, her ju- moral judgment is mm-hmm. maybe not the most trustworthy. You may not want to bring her in mm-hmm. um, to testify at all. I think that the family had some um, response in uh, in the jinx. I, I honestly believe... And I may they may have just used clips of him and then spoken with his lawyer, but that Douglas, the brother, the younger brother who ended up being the heir and taking over the company, um, did come in. Younger relatives certainly participated in the jinx mm-hmm. um, in talking about it. Um, but nothing was presented that I recall about the abusive childhood stuff that was asserted mm. in the movie. That I don't remember from the Jinx. Mm. That may be there, but I don't remember it. That mm-hmm. story, and it's such a profound scene between Gosling and um, Langella. Yeah, let's when, talk about it because we glossed over it before and it, and it's and we're spoiling everything because that's the point of this. But um, he, he says to him, the Ryan Gosling character says, she was standing up on the roof, she was threatening to jump, why didn't you bring me inside? Because your choice not to bring me inside means I witnessed my mother kill myself, kill herself, excuse me. And Frank Langella's response is, I didn't bring you inside because I thought she wouldn't do it if you were there. And it's a huge moment between the it two of them. It is gigantic. Yeah. And then subsequent to that, it is revealed that what he did with his, in the movie, what he did with his wife was put her body in the trunk of his car and drive it to his father's house and give the body to his father to right. deal with, which is, I think, a really big assertion. But one that is made quite elliptically, without ever yeah. showing the body. It's just you he see just Frank Langella the open the trunk of a car and his face and is... And then 10 years later yeah. and... He had no crime. So that that felt like storytelling because it's it's good storytelling, but it's a little neat. But because it's so directly linked to that family, boy, if I was going to sue over something, that would be what I would sue over. The implication that the father had anything to do with disposing of the body. And that hasn't happened. That has not happened. That I know of. Like, maybe they said that they filed some suit, but I don't remember any of that from the jinx either. Um, The thing that you do get a sense of is... Robert and his continuing, because as the jinx unfolds, more and more of this stuff comes to light. Mm-hmm. Like 
the inconsistent, the, the, the bad, the, the consistent misspellings that matched handwriting, Be- finding Verly Hills instead yeah, of Beverly so Hills, an extra E put in an there, extra E in it. Yeah. And I can't remember what the deal is with cadaver, but whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but, and placing him, what it also does is it places him in Los Angeles at a time that would be oh possible for him to have done the murder himself. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Jinx never implies that um, the other guy did the murder. Well, if you were contacted by the subject of your movie and he, after you made the movie where you had to fill in the gaps of how was this murder from committed when he was in Texas and that subject tells you, oh, by the way, I was in Los Angeles during the time of the murder, that's a significant contribution to your documentary after your movie's come yeah. out already. And when they bring him in to call him on the carpet for all of this stuff that they have found out during the course of the... Who's they? The filmmakers? The of filmmaker the filmmaker okay. from the Jinx yeah. bring him in to call him on the carpet for all of the stuff that um, that they found that's ultimately revealed mm-hmm. um, that has caused this trial um, to happen for the Susan Berman murder. Um, he, you know, denies it all on camera or whatever and gives bad Robert Dursty excuses. Mm-hmm. And then wearing a live mic goes to the bathroom and is captured Basically saying, well, they got it. I killed them all, you know, or something like that, which is like, which was mind blowing at the time. If you haven't heard it, I'm sorry to be the spoiler, but I can't believe you haven't heard it by now. It was major news when it happened. Huge news. And it is the reason for all of this, because I, I believe warrants were issued for his arrest before they even aired the final episode Mm -hmm. based on, um, the documentary. It is the ultimate true crime broadcast where they brought attention to the crime and then presented a solution to it and caused it to be go back to trial. He mm-hmm. was um, arrested in New Orleans. Uh, yeah, why is that? Kept, he was there at the time. He was there and, was he on his way to get? No, that wouldn't have made any and, sense. And uh, he was, you know, living in some hotel in New Orleans. He was being yeah. him. Um, and. Uh, I think they fought extradition for a while. I think it was a while before they got him to California, and then they got him to California, and he's old. He's really sick. I'm thinking that we may lose him before we actually convict him. Um, Yeah, he's currently 78 years old. Um, He's tried to delay the trial on health grounds. Those motions have been denied. Uh, They say he's had more than enough delays. He's very frail. He struggles to hear his attorney in court. Um. But it's Robert Durst, so the, all of that may be a put-up right, job. Right, It's just, uh-huh. So the, the trial is ongoing, so we don't have that end to the story. But I think it's about um, the astonishing move of someone, I know I've said it a million times, reaching out in that way. Because let me, let me say this. There's not throughout any of the explorations, either in the movie All Good Things or The Jinx, some that this guy is an attention whore. If anything, he moved and lived under an assailant, dressed as a woman. He's not transgender. He doesn't. It, it wasn't about his gender identity. It was about a disguise. Right. He moved to a small town to get away from all the attention. And yet, why did he contact the man who made a movie about him, implying that he was a murderer, and agree to do the commentary track? It's just astonishing to me. Also, the, the interesting part about it is the movie was a bomb, total bomb. 
box office bomb. And then he contacted the filmmakers and gave them the opportunity to make this additional film, a documentary, albeit about him, that was a huge success. <laughs> like, and it's probably done more for this yeah. movie than anything you could buy. Like, like I say, I saw the movie, like, I think because Ryan and Kirsten were in it on HBO be- well before I saw the jinx, and I didn't really make the con the connection between the two until maybe later in the jinx. Like the- even then, not right off the bat. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an immediate thing, or maybe it was in the setup for the jinx that it mm-hmm. was revealed that it was the same filmmaker or whatever. But I did not go into watching the jinx with any awareness that that movie that I had seen before. Did, did you even, when you began watching the movie for the first time, were you, did you realize this was based on true events? Did the title card register no. with you? You just thought you were watching a kind of thriller, a period thriller? It was this sort of, st- this weird story about yeah. this couple, and I was sort of taken with it and mm-hmm. um i i it was it's a, it's such an odd story and his choices in it Ryan Gosling's character's choices in it were so bizarre bizarre i'm going to move to Galveston and live as a woman a mute woman mm-hmm. as a disguise mm-hmm. um and all of the names were changed and it was all very sort of vague and whatever so it just seemed to me to be this kind of really out there sort of drama. I didn't come away thinking it was a great movie, but it was because I didn't realize it was based on real life events. The odd part is, is that the movie ends with title cards. Like it might be mm-hmm. like it, like if it was a real movie, mm-hmm. like I'm, I can't remember how I, those registered yeah. with me at the time. Right. But the point of the movie is that, you know, you've, you believe that he killed his wife, but you don't know, and you're left to your own supposition because that's kind of where the story is. Like, it's still a missing persons case. They've never found the body, and nobody knows what happened to her. Okay, so here's my hot take. They made the wrong movie. Who? The, the Jarecki. It's the same guy, but they made the wrong movie. The movie should have been less about his marriage and more about his friendship with Berman because that was the story I wanted to see. Why would that friend part? There was there were like two, three scenes of her in the movie, and yet she allegedly helped him cover like up halfway through the movie before you even know she exists. Right, she knows him better than anybody else, knows him and loves him enough to help him cover up the crime, and then is worth killing decades later. That's the movie. Kirsten Dunst, if they needed a bigger star, Kirsten Dunst should have been playing that role. Lily Rabe should have been playing the wife. That's what I would have done. It was so much about this broken marriage that breaks halfway through the movie and then she vanishes and it wasn't about the mechanisms of the murder that they were alleging had taken place. Well, I think that's I think that's the hot take that you make knowing what you know about the story now. But if I watch the jinx, but I would I change think, my mind. No, yeah. no. I think if the jinx didn't exist, the movie they made is the movie they made. Yeah. I because the thing to me that's intriguing that intrigued me about the movie at the time that I watched it was she marries one person and then halfway through her marriage realizes she's married to somebody completely other right. than the man she thinks she married. Mm-hmm. Like until that moment on the balcony at the apartment where she says, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a couple of little kids running around up here? Why didn't they talk about that like, before? Like <laughs> how did that, you know, <laughs> yes, right. it's a complete reversal 
in who he is. But does After he... that point, he stops being the guy who wants to do anything to make her happy right. and becomes this weird kind of psychotic. I mean, there are little illusions where she would say, honey, you're talking to yourself again, mm-hmm. you know, in the car and stuff. But there's none of the sense of of foreboding that, that becomes the case so, after that moment in the movie. Wh- so that's why I think they made the movie that they made. Right. And I, I think that that sounds wise. I, are you saying that it was the asking of the question that shut him down? Or did he, or was there a moment I missed where he gave a different answer to that question early on and said, yeah, maybe I'd be open to a family and kids? Or he had never said that to her. But he never said it to her. When she asked for it, he, he broke. fucking losing yeah, it. He why broke. can't the apartment just be enough? Right. He didn't want to have a family. I don't. He did not want a family. That's the way the movie posits it. I've never heard Robert Durst say that one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't seem to be the family type. He doesn't take exception to almost anything in the movie except for the killing of the dog. That's what's so insane about this whole yeah, case. He doesn't want to be seen as having killed Part of why dog. we're having a conversation. Um, you know, I used to judge uh, uh, some old friends of mine. They were a straight couple. And they would proudfully, pridefully, excuse me, tell the story of how they got together. And they were introduced at a wedding, a friend's wedding. And they sat down. They lived in different cities. And they just went through the whole checklist. Do you want kids? Yes. Do you want it? And it sounded so cold and robotic to me. And it was so, like, calculated. And then I saw this scene. And I was like, this is why people do that. Because the asking of this question destroyed this marriage. Because it was completely unaddressed. And, oh, by the way, he was having very profound mental illness issues. But... But she might have Possibly. seen them earlier if she had asked earlier. Not victim blaming by any stretch. It's just when you analyze the breakdown of a relationship, the way this movie presents it, it was a fascinating moment for me because, like, I now at 45, everybody drink. Am I 45? I'm in my 40s, whatever. Um, <laughs> that, I that's stopped actually, ca- you're actually not. You're not 45 I yet. You're counting. pretty old, I'm but 42. yeah. 42. I stopped counting at 40. Um, like, I, I really have that. I, I would not proceed without having asked those questions. If I'm going to split my life with somebody at this late stage and really let them in, I need to know some things like before the third coffee date. So, but I don't know. I see this all the time. That was sort of the, but to me, that's kind of why this is the movie that they made and yeah. the right movie to make because you're not making it with an awareness of who Robert Durst is. You're making it with, as a way to tell a story that you don't know what the story is. Right. Like she's just missing and nobody mm-hmm. knows what happened to her. And you're trying to pause it. You're right. And the sort of romantic notion of like, he's just wonderful and he just wants to make me happy. I mean, one of the things he says in the movie of her is she loves everything about me, uh-huh. which is one of the things he's really taken with Yeah, because he comes from in the movie, this incredibly, hypercritical, mm-hmm. scathing, unrelenting sort of family mix where he's always wrong and always, you know, made the worst choice or not up to the challenge or, you know, like the the giving of, like when they gave the, um, the chairmanship of the Durst Company or whatever it's called to his younger brother, mm-hmm. he just vanished. Like mm-hmm. his office was cleaned out and he was gone. Mm-hmm. Like just they just never saw him again. Mm-hmm. They had already sort of moved him to a place where he could come and go as he wanted to, and he wouldn't have to account to anybody because he was so 
weird and difficult anyway. I mean, they didn't give they didn't idly give the chairmanship of the company to his younger brother. The thing that the Frank Langella character says to him in the movie when he goes to the organic food store in Vermont or wherever it was, he says, is, I didn't have to explain this to your brothers. They just understood that they would join the business. But for some reason, I have to explain this to you, right? Like he was he was trying to pull away. And you're right. When they got to that moment and that was the end result of drawing him into the company was this near scandal and almost being exposed. They just jettisoned him like you described. Was, yeah. And that's that's real. That's true yeah. to life. He yeah. literally vanished. I think that may have been more or less the moment where he moved to Galveston and Mm-hmm. went off the grid like they knew he was still drawing his money he was entitled but they stopped being connected to him and that was I think one of the other things that emerged from the jinx was his brother saying we don't really know him anymore mm. we've not, not had contact directly yeah. with him in a really long time because there's a long time between the, the his banishment from the company or departure from the company and the first stirrings of a murder case involving him in Galveston, right? Like it's 2000 around then. It's a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a long stretch. Um, and he has really been estranged from his family for a very long while. So, yeah. So yeah, that is really, but yeah, I was interested in knowing from the movie what was true and that would be somebody could do just that special. Yeah. And I would watch that. Um, to what extent was the family involved in being landlords of those kinds of frowsy, questionable businesses? Was he, in fact, collecting cash payment from Times Square, you know, sex trade um, businesses? And did she, in fact, get a hold of proof of that, that she was going to expose? So did that exist? Was Seymour really, did he really subject Robert to watching his mother jump off the house and hit the pavement so hard that her head literally split open Mm -hmm. at his feet. Like, did he traumatize that child? Like, I think that was another thing the movie tried to do was explain why Robert was Robert, why David was David. Mm -hmm. Um, So is what, what truth is there in that? Um, And then, yeah, the overall timeframe of, of how things unfolded with, when he left and how long he was missing. Cause the movie is a little glossier with that, a mm-hmm. little hazier with all of those things in the jinx. You get a sense of really how much time has passed mm-hmm. overall. They don't need to do include that in the special, although it wouldn't hurt. So th- as we said before, we're not doing a pairing of this with a true crime TV club on the same case. But we can totally recommend The Jinx. But we can recommend The Jinx, which is about six or seven episodes, I, I think. think so, yeah. and it's on HBO Max. It's on HBO it's Max. fantastic. But this does lead into our next episode, which is going to involve responses from our beloved party people through the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page, which is where we always post interactive. If you haven't checked us out there, give us a look. What the hell is wrong with you? I know. Get to work. Um, but we asked you recently, and we felt it was an appropriate topic to seg into from a discussion of the Robert Durst case specifically the Susan Berman aspect of it. Right. What would be too much for you to forgive in a loved one, especially if you found it out after their death, specifically in regards to criminal acts? But that was how we phrased the question some time ago. We were actually talking about the het washing of the Henry Diaz murder, which is we discovered the family disavowed that murder victim when they discovered he was secretly gay. But in terms of Susan Berman, we can take the after their dead out of the equation and just make it a question about what's too much for you to forgive? We got a lot of responses. They ran the gamut. They're fascinating. We're going to talk about them next week in our next episode. So and back probably a, one or two other things Absolutely. as well. Because you know how we are. We do wander around the topic. <laughs>
Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher... And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.